Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 32nd episode of this podcast, recorded on Wednesday, November 8. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, Nextfirm. Nextfirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how Nextfirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow Nextfirm on LinkedIn for a preview. Today's guest is someone I've known and admired for a long time. Karen Dunn, one of the nation's top trial lawyers, who last month was named a co-chair of the litigation department at Paul Weiss. She has earned numerous awards and accolades, including Litigator of the Year from The American Lawyer. I profiled her in 2014, back when I was at Above the Law and she had just joined Boyce Schiller. And since then, she has established herself as, in the words of Chambers and Partners, quote, a go-to lawyer for the toughest, most challenging legal problems, close quote. Although Karen has won huge victories for companies like Apple, Oracle, and Uber, one of the wins she's most proud of is Signs v. Kessler. In that case, she and Robbie Kaplan, a past guest on this podcast, secured a groundbreaking $25 million jury verdict against the white supremacists and neo-Nazis behind the infamous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Their work on that case is the subject of a great new HBO documentary, No Accident, which I urge you to watch if you haven't already. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Karen Dunn. Hey, Karen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I know your career, you know, somewhat well, having interviewed you before, but, you know, I actually don't know if I know much about your personal story. So can you tell me about your childhood, your upbringing? Were there any early hints that you become a lawyer? Well, the early hints were very much the opposite, which is my mother went to law school when I was six and when my brother was two. And so as somebody who sometimes had to go with my mom to her law school classes as a six and seven-year-old, the literal last thing that I ever wanted to do was become a lawyer. Although <laughs> I did draw a really excellent picture of a house in property class, I'm told. So... It was not an auspicious start. That's amazing. So you actually were in law school at age six, you could say. Yes, I definitely would say that, although I'm pretty sure that I was not the most welcome law student. <laughs> but I was definitely there. That's interesting. So I guess it was maybe kind of the challenge of juggling being a parent and going to law school. And then did your mother practice afterwards? What did she do? Yeah. So looking back now, you know, having my own kids, my own legal practice, I'm not sure I fully appreciated it then. But looking back, I really appreciated how hard it was what she was doing. So she had a six-year-old and a two-year-old and she enrolled in law school. And after that, she went to be an associate at a law firm in New Jersey where we lived. And she expressly rejected going to work at a big law firm in New York City because she was worried that she would never be able to be home in New Jersey with her kids. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. And where in New Jersey, by the way, did you grow up? So I grew up in Bergen County in a town oh. called Wyckoff. Oh, um, my gosh. That's so funny. I grew up in Saddle River, just a couple towns over. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's wonderful. I love New Jersey. I'm a big New Jersey fan and everything that comes with it, including a love of amusement parks and the <laughs> 80s and yes, highways yes. and everything. 
Oh my gosh, that's great. So did your mom inspire you then to become a lawyer watching her career? No. In fact, at first, my mom inspired me not to become a lawyer. She was an M&A lawyer and worked on the corporate side, which was not anything that I ever saw myself doing. But more than that, I think, you know, as kids, sometimes, at least speaking for my own kids, we sometimes react against what our parents are doing. So I saw my mom was a lawyer and all I knew was I am not going to be a lawyer. And I held on to that actually for quite a lot of years. So when you went to Brown for undergrad, what did you think you wanted to do? Well, like many Brown undergrads, I had no idea. (laughs) And I know you did not go straight through to law school. You actually had a very interesting time in between college and law school. So tell us what you did. Yeah, well, my first job, which I only held down for four months, was at a Middle East policy think tank. But my personality was ill-equipped to be at a think tank, as (laughs) anyone who knows me now could probably attest. And so after two months, I called home and said, I want to quit my job. And my mom, who figures pretty prominently in my personal story, told me that I couldn't quit unless I had a different job. So good advice. And so I went to go work at ABC News as a desk and production assistant, which really was a contract job. It wasn't even an employee job. And what that meant was you were assigned to work shifts day after day. And if you turn down a shift, you might get, in return, highly undesirable shifts. So I worked, you know, days on end, you know, running faxes around the building to the appropriate producers and on-air talent. And that's how I got my start. (laughs) (laughs) And some of our listeners will have to Google what a fax is. (laughs) And then where did you go from there? I know, of course, you later went into political communications, but what was your role immediately after that? Yeah, so this is actually a great story, which is I was at ABC News, and this was the time of the Monica Lewinsky grand jury. And one of my jobs was to sit outside the grand jury and we had pictures of the grand jurors. We're supposed to recognize them and yell questions at them. And there was a camera guy with me. And we were there one day and there was supposed to be a hurricane. And I am, you know, about five feet tall, (laughs) a little over 100 pounds. So the guy who was running the stakeout was very concerned that I would get blown away in the hurricane. (laughs) And he offered me the opportunity to come into the news van with him during the stakeout of the Monica Lewinsky grand jury. And he turned out to be the House off-air for ABC News, for the House of Representatives. And I confessed to him in this van that I really did not want to stay in television news, that I really did not like it. And that I was looking for somewhere where, you know, a relatively young person can get, you know, some good responsibility. And he sat down with me during this stakeout hurricane and went through the congressional yellow book. There used to be a hard copy book with profiles of every member of Congress. And he went through with me, helping me decide who I could apply to out of the congressional yellow book. And I did that. I took his advice. I applied to the people that we agreed on. Some people he told me I couldn't apply to because they weren't very nice. And I ended up working on the House side for Congresswoman Lowy from New York, a spectacular member of Congress. And I was hired there by a guy named Howard Wolfson, who later went on to be Hillary Clinton's communications director when she ran for Senate in 2000. And after that, served as deputy mayor to Mayor Mike Bloomberg in New York. And I'm guessing, is that your connection to Hillary world? So the story of how Howard hired me is also pretty formative for me, which is after working, you know, round the clock shifts at ABC, I turned up 
at my interview at Nita's office, you know, after hours. And I had the very reasonable task of writing a press release. And the, like, I was so exhausted that I only got one paragraph through the press release. And I told Howard, just, you know, never mind about the interview that I was going to give up. And he shouldn't hire me because I couldn't make it through the press release. And so Howard, who's just a wonderful human being, said, well, why don't you show me your paragraph? So I showed Howard my paragraph. And he said to me, Karen, this is a wonderful, excellent paragraph. And the job opening they had was for a, a legislative correspondent, somebody who could write the mail. But what I really wanted to do was communications. So Howard, who was the chief of staff and the press secretary, made a deal with me. If I wrote the mail, he would train me to be a press secretary. And so oh, I would wow. be able to listen into his phone calls with the reporters and learn how to do the job. And because he was so good at his job and I was trained by listening to him, I became, you know, a pretty decent press secretary. And so when Howard got hired to work for Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign in 2000 as her communications director, he hired me to work for him as a press secretary on that campaign. Oh, wow. And then is that how you joined then Senator Clinton's office after she won? Yeah. So after Hillary won, she asked me to come back to D.C. with her and continue doing the press secretary job for her in the Senate. So that is how I ended up trying to move to New York, failing and returning back to D.C. Now, I'm curious, what happened to Howard at some point? Because at some point you were uh, Senator Clinton's head press person or comms person, right? Yeah. So Howard did not come to the Senate. He has lived in New York since then, and he stayed there. And the communications director was at first a guy named Jim Kennedy, who now is at News Corp, actually. Hmm. And Jim Kennedy had worked in the Bill Clinton administration and is a wonderful human being, spectacular writer, and was a great partner to me. And then when Jim left being communications director, Hillary offered me the job. And in a very memorable conversation to me since I was 26 years old at the time. And much like I had told Howard not to hire me because I couldn't write more than a paragraph of a press release. Similarly, I told Hillary that since I was very young and at the time, you know, Al Gore had lost. So she was probably the most prominent Democrat. I said to her, you know, are you sure you want somebody who is so young being your communications director? And she looked at me and she said, doesn't bother me. Seems like it might bother you, though. <laughs> and so given her very, you know, magnanimous vote of confidence, I accepted the job and served as her communications director. All of this prior to going to law school. So you were probably all of what, 25, 26 when you were heading communications for Senator Clinton? Yes, I was. Wow. Yeah. And then what led you to go from serving in her office to returning to her alma mater, Leah Law School, as a student, you have an amazing job. A lot of people would just kind of, I think, have stayed in politics for the rest of their careers. Yeah. Well, I loved my job. And, you know, I still think about it as being one of the best jobs I ever had. I loved working for Hillary. We had a great team, the team in the Senate. We worked so well together, but I was really tired. I had done a Senate campaign and then when I got to the Senate, things were not easy in the beginning, as some people will recall. <laughs> and then, you know, 9-11 happened and she was the senator from New York. So that entirely changed what we did and how we did it. And, you know, obviously very formative 
in my development as a person and then later as a lawyer. And, you know, then she wrote a book and I helped her on the book tour. And finally, I was just so exhausted that I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a break. I thought at the time I might want to be a prosecutor in the government. And I know we've talked about that before. And so I said, you know, I'll go to law school. And if I still want to come back to politics, you know, it'll still be here, but maybe I'll really love being a lawyer. And what had led you in these intervening years to have this change of heart as to law school? I think part of it was the work that I did for Hillary. So I was her communications director and her press secretary. And, you know, she had a lot of detractors. So, you know, the press would come and we worked with the New York tabloids all the time. You know, the New York Post had somebody assigned to her (laughs) 24-7. And they would come with questions and theories that were just not right. And so I would spend a lot of time gathering facts to build the case to push back against what the press was trying to write. And I felt like I had to be persuasive. And it occurred to me one day that these are all things that lawyers do. They gather facts, they build cases, they communicate, they try to be as persuasive as possible to convince somebody of something. And so I thought, you know, I might really like being a trial lawyer where I could use those skills, but I also loved the government. So I thought, you know, maybe I would return to the government on the enforcement side as a prosecutor and put my communication skills to work. And I'm curious, what did Senator Clinton think about your going to law school? Well, at first she was, you know, looking down the road at an additional campaign for Senate. And she thought I should stay with her. And, you know, I do remember her saying, you know, Karen, you're at the top of your game doing the communications and, you know, don't you want to follow it out? And I said to her, I said, but Senator, you went to law school. In fact, you went to this law school. (laughs) And, you know, in the end, she couldn't have been prouder, was completely supportive and still is today. You know, we've kept in great touch. And anytime something, you know, happens, In my career, you know, she is the first person to be a cheerleader for me. So I couldn't have asked for better mentors, including her. So after you graduated from Yale Law School, you clerked for Judge Garland. How did you decide you wanted to clerk? I decided I wanted to clerk when one of my law professors made a comment to somebody else that I would never clerk on the Supreme Court. Really? (laughs) That turned out to be wrong, but... (laughs) That's sort of shorthand. What happened was I had a law professor that I think, you know, thought I came from politics and just didn't think I was destined for anything great in the law and was very discouraging of me. And then I had a different law professor, Professor Kate Stith, who when I went to her to ask her advice, she said, you know, you absolutely should clerk. And also, I really recommend you look at the D.C. Circuit and in particular, this judge, Merrick Garland, because I think the two of you would get along very well. I think he'd like you very much. So it was on her recommendation that I applied to Judge Garland. And then later on, Judge Garland's recommendation that I applied to the Supreme Court and to Justice Breyer. But I think, you know, fueling me this entire time was the fact that there was this law professor, you know, who didn't think I could do it. And so (laughs) there's nothing more motivating than when somebody tells you you can't do something. So after your clerkship with Justice Breyer, which I know you've said was just an incredible educational experience, and I know also how highly you've spoken of Judge Garland, what was your first job after that? I went to clerk for Judge Garland. I went to clerk for Justice Breyer. And then this was 
almost contemporaneous with the 2008 general election. So I had always planned that after I finished clerking, I would go work for Hillary on her presidential campaign. And in fact, I had told them that I was coming as soon as the clerkship ended. But then the clerkship ended and she had dropped out three weeks prior. So that wasn't going to be an option. I didn't really plan on going back to politics, but I got a phone call from David Axelrod, who I had known from Hillary's 2000 Senate race when he was the consultant for the New York State Democratic Party. And I had worked very closely with him then. And he called me to ask if I would come to Chicago and work for him. He was, you know, at that point, candidate Obama's chief strategist. And David asked if I would come work for him on the campaign. So I did that. I did the 2008 general in Chicago. And then I kind of put my foot down and said, you know, I really want to be a lawyer. And everyone said, okay, you want to be a lawyer. That's fine. You should go to the White House counsel's office. And so (laughs) I worked with Greg Craig and a few other people to help set up the first counsel's office under President Obama. And I went to work, work there. And I didn't work there for very long. I was there for the first year, which feels like, you know, an eternity in the first year of administration. And during that time, I got, you know, I got to work on the Sotomayor confirmation, which is kind of similar to debate prep, (laughs) Supreme Court (laughs) prep, confirmation prep. And then at the end of the first year, I left to be finally, after all this, to be a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. So that's interesting. A lot of people would say, being at the White House counsel's office is amazing. And don't get me wrong, being a federal prosecutor is amazing too, but what led you to make that jump? Look, service in the White House and in any of these jobs is just an immense privilege. And I did love it. You know, the whole reason I got to law school in the first place is because I wanted to be a prosecutor. I wanted to try cases. And I really would not have felt like I had, you know, completed the mission if I didn't get on my feet inside a courtroom. And so it's actually, you know, makes a lot of sense to me to go from the White House to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I went to the Eastern District of Virginia, which is a really excellent U.S. Attorney's Office. The people who work there work there for years. They're so collegial and very committed to the cause of justice. So I went there and, you know, was really trained on how to be a prosecutor and how to be a great trial lawyer by folks in that office. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow Next Firm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. And then how long did you spend in EDVA and where did you go after that? So I was there for a bit over two years and I got a phone call when I was at my desk in the EDVA from Bob Bauer. And he was putting together the team that would prepare President Obama for his reelection debates. And He called me up and he said, you know, Karen, you're the only person we can all agree on. And in politics, sometimes that's code for you're a person who none of us finds threatening. (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, it was a huge compliment and an opportunity that I did not feel I could decline. 
And so I left what was basically my dream job to go run Obama debate prep in 2012. And then DOJ promptly enacted a hiring freeze (laughs) while I was gone doing debate prep. And so I ended the campaign eight months pregnant with my second kid and in the middle of a DOJ hiring freeze. So going (laughs) back after that was not an option for me. So tell me about the debate prep. Were they reaching out to you? Did Bauer reach out to you because you were a trial lawyer or did you have some kind of high school or college background to debate? What led you to jump out to them besides obviously all your great qualities, but what led you to jump out to them as a debate person? Because you said that you did not lead Hillary's debate prep. You were maybe involved in it, you said, but you didn't lead it. This is an excellent question because I strongly believe that there is a skill set of people who do debates. And it's sort of a niche thing, right? There's like a cottage industry. But the skill set is you have to be somebody who has communication skills, political instincts, and preferably is a lawyer. So can understand the tactics of debate. And there's just not that many people who fall into this category. And I think the closest analog really is Ron. So, you know, Ron is a fantastically accomplished lawyer, and he's also somebody who has impeccable communication skills and background and amazing political instincts. And so I think he really defined the mold, at least in the Democratic Party, for the kind of person who does this. And so, you know, by the time I was asked to do Obama debates, I had already done the Sotomayor confirmation. You know, everybody knew I was a lawyer, but they also knew that I had been a very high-level communications professional. And so I really think it's the trifecta of comms, lawyer, and politics, and being able to bring that all together, that is the skill set that's required for this kind of bizarre exercise that we go through every four years. And I'm curious, though, had you done debate in high school or college, just out of curiosity? So I did do debate in high school, and I was not a success at it. Really? Okay. We were fine. The story that is always told about my high school debate experience is we were debating assigned position was to debate against Head Start. Now, Head Start is probably one of the least controversial programs in all America. (laughs) And my partner and I were debating against it. The debate team on the other side, which was, uh, you know, we were in high school, so it was a boy and a girl. And my team was a boy and a girl, brought a book about Head Start and put it on the desk. So when it was our turn, I came up to the desk. I picked up the book about Head Start. I made some sort of very impassioned point put the book down and it flew across the desk and hit the girl on the other team. (laughs) And it turns out that their debate coach was running the debate tournament. And her commentary about me was, young ladies do not throw books. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Did you win that round? What happened? No, I mean, that was, you know, it's a very telling story. But I always hear in my head, young ladies do not throw books. Oh, my gosh, that's great. Wow. So turning to the debate prep for the Obama campaign, take us inside that room. I I know you've also like impersonated some of I mean, does the debate prep involve sort of like sitting around a room and talking at a big 30,000 foot level? Does it involve mock debates? What does that entail? Yeah, so all of the above, you know, it's a process. And, you know, presidential debates are the most watched 
television apart from the Super Bowl in America. Mm-hmm. You can get 90 million people yes. watching a presidential debate. So no matter who you are, no matter how confident, no matter your experience, you really need to prepare. And it's an incredibly stressful experience. So all of the things that you talked about are required. You work on materials. They have to be great. You need to discuss the materials. The candidate has to, you know, put the materials in their voice. They have to really internalize what they want to say. And then, of course, there's practice, which we try to do as realistically as possible, you know, with somebody playing the candidate on the other side. In 2012, John Kerry played Mitt Romney in exceptional likeness, did quite a good job. And then obviously somebody plays the moderator or moderators. And so it's a lot of work. It takes an incredible investment of time from the team and from the candidate. So now to rewind back to you leave the campaign. There's a DOJ hiring freeze. So where did you go after that? Well, I actually stayed home with my kid for for something like, I don't know, like a year. Wow. <laughs> not many people know that. I mean, it, I did not know that. That's great. Right. It is great. And, and it was great. You know, I, it didn't make sense to go to a job because I was about to have a baby. I mean, there are pictures you said from you were eight months pregnant. I, okay, yeah, there there are pictures from the from the third debate where it looks like I'm going to have the baby any minute. Um, <laughs> and I basically did. He was born in December oh. that year, and so I, you know, I called it my maternity leave from nowhere because I had no job. I did do a couple projects like that year. I did Mark Warner's debates. I did Cory Booker's debates, and I, you know, I, I thought I would go back to the government. And then the longer I stayed out of the government, the more I thought that there might be other things to do. So I ended up interviewing, you know, in other places and talking to people and eventually found my way to my former law firm, Boy Schiller Flexner, and was recruited there by my very good friend, Mike Gottlieb. And I, you know, I felt like their sort of trial lawyer ethos really fit with mine. And I went to work there, which I surprised even myself going into private practice. And I think that's actually the occasion I had to profile you in maybe 2014 or whenever it was when you went to BSF. And you were there for quite some time, as I recall, right? Yeah. So I started there in 2014. Your memory is very good. And I was there until June of 2020 when I started at Paul Weiss, where I am now. And what were some of the highlights of your cases at Boyce Schiller? The primary highlight was the beginning of my trial partnership with Bill Isaacson. And, you know, I got to the firm in probably February 2014. In August, Bill got a call from Apple to take over a case that another law firm had had for 10 years, but that was going to trial in December of 2014. So, Incredibly, Bill, who had never seen me in a courtroom, asked me if I would like to do this trial with him. And we teamed up to do it. And it was really fun and really effective. So we had just a couple months to prep for trial. We tried the case. It was before Judge Gonzalez Rogers and DeCal. And the jury came back in three hours with a complete defense verdict. Wow. And It was just such a great experience. And, you know, we found we worked really well together. We had other teammates who are, you know, fantastic, who we still work with today. And we just felt like, you know, this is the start of something really good. 
that this was so fun. Like, why don't we just keep doing this? So that was a huge, probably the key highlight of my time at BSF. Another important case I did when I was there, also a major highlight, is I defended Uber in the Uber Waymo trade secrets case before Mm -hmm. Judge Alsup, which was like probably, you know, the most high profile and contentious, (laughs) difficult (laughs) trade secrets case in quite some time. And, you know, we were in court basically every week for a year on that case and ultimately, you know, secured after four successful days of trial, secured a very favorable settlement for our client. And I, you know, spent hours of my life preparing Travis Kalanick for his trial testimony. And, you know, when it was done, the jurors told reporters that they thought Travis was such a great guy and loved him. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting because his public reputation wasn't always the greatest. So, okay, great. (laughs) He was a fantastic trial witness. And I think, you know, really opened up and people got to see the best side of him. Anyway, so that was really a highlight of my time at Boy Schiller. And in general, just, you know, being able to try cases for clients I love. You know, I love it. I love it very much. So in terms of some of your major trials, I would say that one of your most important trials, I would guess, would be the Charlottesville trial, Signs v. Kessler, going after the white supremacist behind the horrific Unite the Right rally. And that was a partnership with another great trial lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, who I interviewed on the podcast about this. So I'm familiar with some of the story, and I'm sure many of our readers are, because it was such a hugely high-profile and consequential case. But just kind of give us the nutshell version of how you and Robbie came to work together. Because as I recall from what I've read or what Robbie told me or maybe interviews, it was not like you and Robbie were like a Bill Isaacson and Karen Dunn. You really hadn't worked together before, right? Not only had we not worked together, we didn't know each other. (laughs) I mean, we knew of each other. Yep. And, you know, I had been a prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia I had done conspiracy cases. I had done First Amendment work. I had represented, along with Mike Gottlieb, the owner of Comet Pizza, which was the victim of, you know, a conspiracy theory where a guy showed up with an AR-15 in D.C. So I think Robbie knew some of that before she called me. And I knew who she was, you know, from Windsor. But we did not know each other. So she called me up, you know, pretty much out of the blue and said, you know, do you want to sue the Nazis with me? (laughs) And I said, of course, you know, (laughs) how could I not? And that was the beginning of, you know, really four plus year odyssey that culminated in the trial in October of 2021 in the Western District of Virginia. And the stories from that case could fill like 18 more podcasts. And interestingly enough, they also fill a great new documentary from HBO, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, No Accident. I saw it a couple of nights ago, and I highly recommend it. I am curious. It's amazing to see how much access this crew had to you, and they're sitting in on these meetings. And of course, your amazing clients gave them so much of their time, even though obviously it was very difficult for your clients to talk about some of the terrible things that had happened to them that night and that day. But I am curious, how did the documentary project that turned into No Accident come about? So this was Robbie's idea to have it be filmed. And I think her view on this was really informed by the documentary about the Prop 8 case that David Boyce had done. And she just felt like, you know, this is going to be a seminal case and we should 
record it for posterity. And, you know, I'll confess to being, like most lawyers, pretty reluctant at first to being filmed. But by the time that we got to trial, you know, one of the things that I found so frustrating was because you can't have cameras in federal court, people were not able to see all of the evidence. And this was during the pandemic. So you couldn't even have as many people in the gallery or any people, right? Other than people people involved. Yeah, we had a pool reporter and sometimes a sketch artist, but the jury was seated in the gallery, all masked. And so the reporters, you know, had to be in an overflow room. And it made it really hard for people to see the actual evidence of the case, which was completely horrifying. And one of the reasons I do hope your listeners will watch the movie is it is a real wake-up call about the white supremacist movement in America, how organized they are, how coordinated they are. You know, the title of the film sort of says it all, No Accident. That came from one of your, was it your opening, your like where you talked about how what happened in Charlottesville was no accident. It was very carefully planned, coordinated. In opening, I told the story about how the white supremacist defendants planned for violence, executed violence, and celebrated the violence after the fact. And that was all part of a very intentional conspiracy to commit racially motivated violence. And so, you know, I think every person needs to understand this because it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that this movie, in addition to being great for, you know, inspiring for hopefully for young lawyers, because it shows how we put the case together, it really does a great job with jury selection and the trial. I think more important than all of that is the fact that it shows people inside a real movement that is growing in America. It shows their tactics and their motivations. And I think it will equip people, you know, for whatever's going to come down the road. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So two years after the verdict, which was a great one, you won $25 million, I believe, for your clients. Do you see a long-term impact on the white supremacist movement from uh, what you were able to accomplish there? Because the defendants were a who's who of, of, I guess I use the term weirdly, sort of luminaries in the white supremacist movement. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Spencer, Chris Cantwell, Matthew Heimbach. One of the things you can do because we're bringing a civil case is we really sued the entire leadership of the white supremacist movement who were responsible for this violence. And as opposed to, you know, just suing one person for a one concrete act of violence, we brought a really large conspiracy case and it did have a significant deterrent effect. Most people do not know that Charlottesville was called Charlottesville 2.0. And that's because the defendants had been in Charlottesville prior for Charlottesville 1.0. And they very much intended to return for Charlottesville 3.0 and on. And this happened at a time when there were these various planned violent events on college campuses. There was something called the Battle of Berkeley. This was the Battle of Charlottesville. And very much the intent was to keep doing it. And so we know that there was a deterrent effect on events that never came to be because of the lawsuit that we brought and that, you know, people who now think, should we do something similar, know that they could face, you know, financially debilitating jury verdicts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that some of the defendants represented themselves pro se, others had counsel, but 
I'm guessing that between the legal fees and the damages, I feel like some of these figures we haven't heard quite as much about. And I guess some of them, like Richard Spencer, have even sort of uh, changed views on some issues, shall we say? Yeah. Some of the defendants claim to have reformed. But also, I think the case really fractured these groups from each other. Because, you know, everybody was busy trying to say, well, we weren't part of the conspiracy. Mm. We weren't part of the conspiracy. So I also think it had an effect on the movement overall. But, you know, there, this is not, you know, I think Robbie says at the end of the movie that we thought this was be the end of something. But in reality, in retrospect, it feels like it was just the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so I do think, you know, the movie is a good tool to raise awareness about all of these issues and things we yeah. don't really think about that intentionally operate under the radar. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. The movie actually does leave some, I guess, open questions or some things for the future. I guess I'm curious, are you going to bring a new case on the federal charges the jury hung on? Because interestingly enough, the Ku Klux Klan Act, the federal law, which was in many ways the legal engine driving this, I believe, or I recall from the film and, and from what I've read, that the jury actually found liability on the Virginia state analog, yes. but not the Ku Klux Klan Act, which struck me as strange. So I guess my first question is, one, what is different about the elements or, or facts or law that would explain that? And two, are you bringing a new case on the charges the jury hung on? Yeah, there was no really substantial difference. I, I, our working theory, and of course we don't know, is that there was a compromise to get out, you know, by Thanksgiving, <laughs> <laughs> which is sometimes what happens in juries. Um, yes. Because, you know, the rest of the verdict was pretty overwhelming, right? So they found liability with respect to each and every defendant. Yes. They didn't, you know, one of the things I, I was worried about is they were going to, you know, take, siphon some people off. And they did not do that. And then the monetary awards were very high and very intentional, right? It wasn't yeah. the same amount of money for everybody necessarily. I mean, it was really very thought out and definitely designed to send a message. So, you know, we can't know why this distinction was made and we can't know whether under the law it was, you know, correct or not even. So we just have to live with that uncertainty. And obviously, you know, we're still holding open all our options as to what to do about the you know, the federal claim. But I do think much of the impact has been felt. You know, I don't, you know, nobody thinks that these defendants have $26 million anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I think, I do think, you know, it's something to think about, but I think the jury sent a very clear message with the verdict that they handed down. Now, of course, I think it was that message that resonated and it was the $25 million that, that got the headlines. Subsequently, Judge Moon, for various reasons, reduced the damages. Are you appealing the damages reduction? Any thoughts on that? And did any of the defendants, I guess my question is, any appellate proceedings generally in this case? Yeah, the, the key thing is the there is a Virginia state statute on punitive damages. And based on his reading of that statute, Judge Moon did reduce the damages and that we are appealing. So stay tuned. It's still not over, but we are currently working on that appeal. And is that being briefed or argued? What stage is that in? Really? It's been briefed and it will be argued. OK, got it. One last question, because you're, you're a super busy person. 
When you were filming No Accident, were you concerned about privilege and confidentiality? And these folks, I assume, are not within the circle of privilege. What if some of your adversaries heard about this project and wanted to get footage? How did you deal with those concerns? Yeah, we were really careful. I mean, I think if you watch the movie, you can see that the parts that are in the movie are not going to effectuate any privilege waiver. So we were very careful about that. The other thing that's fascinating to me about this is how the trial is recreated, which is recreated with sketches and with our voiceover. So That was great. I really admired the filmmaker's technique on that. Me too. I was wondering the whole time, how are they going to do this? And what they did- No cameras in federal court. Right. And I just thought, how will this happen? So they came back and they recorded us reading parts of the transcript. So like we read the opening and the closing and, you know, I read some cross-examinations that I had done. And then they had actors read the defendant's parts. Oh. Right. So my cross of Jason Kessler, you have, I'm reading me and then some actor is reading Jason Kessler. And actually the Richard Spencer actor sounds so much like Richard Spencer. Wow. (laughs) That I actually asked the filmmakers whether it was, real Richard Spencer, who had recorded it because it's so much like him. So they did the voiceover and the sketches, and they managed to really recreate these moments in trial, which is extraordinary. But Mm -hmm. I do think coming back and doing a lot of the interviewing after the trial was over helped avoid some of these issues with respect to confidentiality and privilege. Like, if you look really closely, you can see that a lot of my part is voiceover that was recorded after the fact. Okay, interesting. And I just am also curious, would this affect your view on cameras in the courtroom in the sense that did have the film crew around cause you to change anything? Because people who oppose cameras in the courtroom say, oh, people are going to be hamming it up or doing things for the camera. How did having a crew around affect your work on the case? So I've thought so much about this. You know, I do think the cameras affect you. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to not invite them into rooms, honestly. (laughs) They forgave me for that ultimately. but. I do think it's hard to do your work when there's an ever-present camera. So I have always opposed cameras in the courtroom. However, for a case like this, that is of such immense public importance, I think it was a huge negative because, you know, we uncovered, you know, treasure troves of evidence that would be immensely shocking and immensely important for people to understand. and it's almost impossible to get that out into the world. Mm. So I'm grateful for the movie because that does help a bit. But I have sort of reconsidered my view, at least with respect to certain cases that might be of such immense public importance that, you know, society and history are going to be deprived to not know what happened. Okay. And one last question before we move to our speed round. Another reason I wanted to have you on the show was you were recently appointed, along with Ken and Shadden McGam, a co-chair of litigation at Paul Weiss, which is just killing it right now as a law firm. And I know you mentioned that you haven't fully formed your plans for co-chair. You're you're really new in the role. But one thing I'm curious about is the legal community has definitely been talking about Paul Weiss's seemingly insatiable appetite for star laterals. I think bringing you and Bill was kind of almost like the start of this tear. They took all those, you know, folks from Kirkland recently. And so some people are wondering, how is Paul Weiss doing this? And I've even heard people say, oh my gosh, this is just like a house of cards. Like, Can you tell us, like, how is Paul Weiss doing this? Well, I would say it's the opposite of a house of cards. The people who have come here are truly excellent lawyers who really like each other. And we're like a very cohesive team. 
So that's one thing. And oh, the I didn't mean thing, House of Cards like the show. I mean oh. House of Cards like um, no, I know, it, <laughs> I, I know what you mean. But there is a universe of people who are not laterals, who you know are spectacular attorneys, and you know Brad certainly is a really excellent leader in protecting the culture of the place and the collegiality and making sure that, you know, laterals are assimilated both with their work, but also, you know, culturally into the firm. And so, you know, you don't walk around thinking like, oh, that person's lateral, that person's not. Hmm. It's very, you know, I would say, you know, our integration was seamless. And I think the same can be said for other laterals who have come. I don't even think we were at the beginning, you know, Scott, Barchet, oh, yeah, Scott Barche from Cravath, of course. before yeah. us. And I do think that the people who have come have integrated so well that it doesn't feel jarring. And it's been great. And, you know, Ken and I are working together with Jessica Carey, who grew up here at the firm. She's co-chair of litigation with us. And obviously, Ted Wells, who also was a lateral, but a very long time ago <laughs> from a law firm in New Jersey. That yes, my mom also Sandler, at. yeah. Yes, right, exactly. Just to bring it back full circle, my mom had an office when she was an associate at Lowenstein next to Ted's oh, office. Oh, wait, so she worked at Lowenstein, actually? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's a that, you know, great firm. That was not just like some random New Jersey firm. I agree. My mom is a rock star. So she, it's <laughs> very funny to me that now I work at a firm where I, Ted Wells is, you know, one of my colleagues. And so many years ago when my mom started her firm, Ted Wells was one of her colleagues. <laughs> very funny. Oh my funny. gosh, that's amazing. So now onto the speed round. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or it can be law as an abstract system of governance. So as somebody who loves the law and my job, I will say the thing that I like the least is I do think the profession still has a significant amount of embedded sexism. And I think we're working on that. It is no longer that people think you can only be a a great trial lawyer if you fell out of central casting from a movie of 50 years ago. But I think it's, you know, we have to keep plugging away and making progress. Okay, fair enough. And considering that you and Robbie are two of the most kick-ass trial lawyers in America, I think you're making progress. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? Okay, If I wasn't a lawyer, I would be somebody who reviews new TV shows to to figure out if they should go on the air. I love television. And And how on earth do you have the time? You're co-chair of Paul Weiss. You have a trial every other week. You have three children. I mean, give me your secrets for time management. You know, I I feel like the T, you know, even when you're in trial, you can watch TV for a half an hour a night. Sure. Okay. Somebody once told me sleep is trial prep too. (laughs) And I believe this. I think if your brain does not shut off for, you know, 30 minutes, like you'll drive yourself crazy. But I love TV. So I would be a a new TV show screener. So actually, speaking of sleep, that leads me to my third question. How much sleep do you get each night? So I get somewhere between six and seven hours of sleep. Oh, wow. Okay. Totally respectable. Yeah. I was about to say, I was wondering if you were one of these people... I don't know if Hillary, there's some famous people who are like, oh, I get by on four hours or something like that. I don't know. If I had four hours of sleep, I would be a mess. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you are, you are not, you're, well, you're superhuman in many ways, but you still get your sleep. And I guess my final question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom, either career advice or life advice for my listeners? Yeah, well, I have been blessed to work with many other great lawyers, including younger lawyers. And one thing I always tell them is to start from a place of yes. 
I firmly believe that the opposite of yes is not no, it's fear, Mm. at least in a professional context. And I think that, you know, the people I've seen who have the greatest amount of growth and frankly, the greatest amount of enjoyment of the job are the people who, you know, everyone experiences the fear, but these are the people who shove the fear aside and take on the things that they think that they can't do. So for me, I always tell people, start from a place of yes. And, you know, the more that you think you can't do something is probably the more you should say yes to doing it. I think that no fear note is a great one to end on. It's how you responded when you were nervous about taking the job with Hillary. It's how you responded when Robbie called you up for Science v. Kessler. So Karen, thank you so much both for taking the time and for all that you do for the cause of justice in this country. Well, thank you so much, David. This is such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Karen for joining me, as well as all she has done to advance equality and justice in our nation. If you haven't done so already, definitely check out No Accident on HBO. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, November 29. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>